Yes, hello everyone and welcome to the Dribble Podcast, your home for basketball in WA with an inside look at the Perth Wildcats, Perth Lynx and WA basketball throughout the 2021-22 seasons. My name is Craig O'Donoghue from the West Australian newspaper and throughout this year I'll be joined by a host of guests to provide you with as much insight and entertainment as your basketball brain can handle. In this episode, we'll be joined by Inform Perth Wildcats import Vic Law as we delve into the amazing backstory on his life before the NBL. Plus, Ash Isenbarger will join us from the Perth Lynx after producing the game of her life last week against Canberra. But first, we really need to acknowledge what an incredible performance it was from both teams last week. To step onto the court just days after their lives were thrown into turmoil by the WA border announcement, start poorly and then win showed the class of both organisations. Let's be clear here. They have been let down. Both clubs left the state and their families in December with assurances they could return freely on February 5. Now, not only can't they return without having to quarantine, but their families will also have to quarantine as well. This is incredibly significant because the conditions are vastly different to what the players and coaches experienced when leaving the state last season. I was really lucky in 2020. I was allowed to leave the state to live in Queensland to cover the AFL hub. I went twice, which meant I had to quarantine twice. And both times I came home when my wife and kids were living and they had remained in WA while I was in the state, yet I could live with them and they could leave the house to live their lives normally. Now, you can argue the inconsistency of me or anyone else quarantining in the same house as the rest of the family while they're free to roam around in the community. And it's fair to say I could never wrap my head around that either. But they were the rules that were in place and it was the norm for athletes from the start of the pandemic. Now they've changed those rules on them at this point of the year and it's really hard for them to get their heads around. Suddenly, Scott Morrison's wife and two young kids can't leave the house when he's back. Jesse Wagstaff can't send his school-aged kid to class. Sammy Wickham's wife can't work at a new job. And the core of the Lynx players who work full-time to support themselves have to ask employers for more annual leave. Yet Mark McGowan had the temerity to say that sport isn't his priority. It's not about the games. It's about the bloody people who play it, and people should be a priority. Former AFL coach Dennis Pagan had a great saying, don't piss me down my back and tell me it's raining. Well, right now, there's a lot of athletes with wet backs. But I'm sure you didn't tune into the podcast this week purely to hear me talk about the WA border laws. So let's enter the jungle and talk about this law. Law sees a path baseline and gets upstairs. Birch. Vic Law. Thanks, floater by Vic Law. Law. Back out. Cotton. Back to Law. Oh, that's ridiculous. Yes, Vic Law, welcome to the Dribble Podcast. Thanks for having me. That was quite a performance from you against Illawarra, Vic. No shots in the first quarter, and you finished with 22 points, seven rebounds, two blocks. It was quite a statement. What changed for you after quarter time? Um, I thought, I'd, you know, we uh, came out to another one of our, you know, notoriously great starts, and um, I felt like it was it was time for me to be be a little bit more aggressive. Um, you know, I, I think we were trying to, you know, trying to just establish a couple guys early, um, but you know, even even while doing that, that doesn't mean I I can't be aggressive. So I came out of the second quarter trying to make it a point to um, assert myself a little bit. 
So it was a fair point you made in the second quarter, just dominating the game. But it was interesting watching the match. The focus of the commentary team throughout the game was how it was possible for someone like yourself to not get a single shot in the first quarter, given the team was struggling. They felt that they should have been going through you a lot more. Can you take us inside your offense a little bit to discuss how you and Bryce and and Michael Frazier are sort of working things out together as what is a really new import combination? Yeah, I mean, the, um, the combo of us three and with especially with the rest of the guys has just been really cool, you know, throughout the year. I feel like just with our play styles and how, you know, each of us are willing to kind of get off the ball and, and defer to one another, it's, it's been kind of great. I think, you know, you're still seeing like Todd Bunch still get his rhythm back. Michael Frazier is still coming along and things are great, right? And that's why you have a team, you know? You might have guys that have off nights every every now and then, and you know other guys step up and play well. So, I think on any given night, any of us can play well, and, and it's a, a full team effort. So we're interviewing you at the moment. This is currently Tuesday, January twenty five, and we'll be uploading on Australia Day. And January twenty six yep. is a massive date for you in your basketball life because it's the day you made your NBA debut back in twenty twenty. So it's your two year anniversary, but. It was also the day that Kobe Bryant passed away. And I'm not sure many people would have felt so conflicted with their emotions about the happiness of a debut, but the sadness of what was going on in America at the time. Can you take us back to that day and what it was like emotionally? Yeah, so, you know, I just we had just come off of a G League win in uh, Greensboro, and uh, which is in uh, Char- near Charlotte, North Carolina. And... Uh, you know, I got I had gotten told by the general manager at the time, Anthony Parker, that um, you know, this, this is uh, the Magic are, are calling you up today. You know, this is when you this is what you've been asking for. You finally are going up, um, and you know, we'll send you out in the morning. So, so next day, early that morning, we flew out. Me and uh, one of the other NBA guys, Melvin Frazier, flew out. Maybe at about seven a.m. from Greensboro and landed in New Jersey. Uh, from New Jersey, went to Orlando to, to try and make it to shoot around, and uh, it uh, it's actually funny. We 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 had to go, and I'm sure you know all the news was just lost with us kind of being in um, up in the air. But uh, it took us about I don't even know a couple hours. We landed at like 11:40. Had to hurry up getting an Uber and kind of speed on down. You know, the days when Uber was still around speed on down to uh, the arena and um, you know, I kind of go in the arena and I'm, I'm feeling pretty pumped up to finally make my debut and uh, you know, be back with the magic, right? Like it's, it's, it's the day where I feel like my dream is coming true and I'm um, up, you know, kind of with the team and everyone's just kind of walking around like zombies. You know, I, I didn't really know kind of what the energy was like. And I thought it was like kind of like the rookie kind of treatment. I didn't, I didn't really get it. But then, you know, I talked to Terrence Ross, and he tells me, you know, kind of just, just really, you could just tell with his body language down that uh, Kobe Bryant had died, and um, you know, it just kind of put a whole dark cloud on the day. And uh, we were meant to play the Los Angeles Clippers, and I think Doc had wanted to play or something, or like he had, he had kind of had a message that Kobe would have wanted to play, you know, Kobe would have played. So, you know, the game went on, but it was just it's really weird throughout the whole whole kind of process. You mentioned that the flights there, that you said you went from North Carolina to New Jersey and out, and out to the other side of the country. That, that's not a normal way that you would get from North Carolina to the other side of the country. I wouldn't have thought it would have taken you half the day. <laughs> nah, no. We, um, 
I guess that's just the only the only fight that they had those connecting fights. Um, but you know, I'm, I'm happy I made it. You know, I'm, I'm devastated to hear that. You know, Kobe had passed, but you know, I'm happy we made it and and got to get up there and get rolling. Is it right you had some issues with your luggage across those multiple flights as well? Oh man, yeah. They um, so at first they told me I wasn't gonna dress, so I needed clothes and a suit and stuff. And uh, when we landed. The airline had actually lost all my my luggage and stuff, so I told the, our director of ops that you know I uh, I might need a whole new wardrobe for the day. But luckily, you know, I, I guess luckily the coach told me when I got to shoot around, I'm, I might need to be ready to play. So um, I guess all I needed was my uniform. So when the Wildcats went to America a couple of years ago for the NBA preseason games, they had they lost all their luggage on the way back as well. But a few of them had said that they oh, deliberately wow. thought, I'm going to pack a bag just of basketball gear in case a circumstance like this arises and we need to just have shoes or just have something to work with. They were warming up in their pajamas from from business class off the plane, but they had shoes and they had pajamas. That was all they were working with. Did you have anything when you got off the plane that day? I just had my basketball shoes and the clothes on my back. So it was it was a bizarre bizarre day then. But it must have, did you do you look back with a, with a fondness as, as you know you didn't get much time on court, but you had an opportunity to make your debut on on what is a really strange environment, a strange day. But it is the day that you made your debut. So how do you reflect on it now? Uh, I mean, yeah, I think you know all things considered, looking back on it, just trying to pay respect to to Kobe and and just be a part of the day. You know, it was kind of like you said, a weird day, but. I think now that, now that I'm, I'm looking back on it, still a sad day, but I'm happy I did get that opportunity. So you, we talk about your debut in those circumstances, and then you play about five games before the season is suspended due to COVID. So you finally achieve your dream, and then you're doing something where everyone else is working from home, but athletes can't because you can't play sport over Zoom. It's not a video game. Like, What was that like to go through? Well, actually, when um, we were only home for maybe a week or you know a couple of weeks, and then the NBA had kind of passed the protocols and Florida never really like shut down all the way. So the media passed protocols to where players who start training again, if the, you know, if the arenas could get cleaned and stuff. So I went back to our, me and my partner went back to Orlando. Um, and I began working out, you know, in preparation for the bubble. So, and how was the bubble? Like, as we said, in terms of dreams, you want to be playing in front of the big crowds and have the pizzazz and the excitement and you're playing in front of nobody. No, nah, no. Um, it was uh, it was weird at first, right? Like, you know, they kind of tried to put the video boards around the arena to, uh, I guess, make it so you could see people's faces. I don't, I don't really know. It's not the same, but you know, they imported music and different stuff. But you know, in my eyes, I just thought it was cool that I was on the court and with all those players and got the opportunity to showcase what I could do. So when you look back at it now, we asked Bryce last week when he was on how he feels about his previous NBA experience, and he said it took a long time for him to get over not being there again. Uh, are you c- content with what you experienced that first time as, as what the experience would genuinely be, or does it drive you so much harder to get the genuine experience of uh, a season and get back there and have the hype and the, the excitement and be really part of an entire year? Uh, I think what more so drives me than anything is that I, maybe I wasn't so much ready at the time. You know, I think I'm so competitive and so fiery that in, in the moment I thought I should have gotten more opportunities and, and more of this and more of that. But, you know, as you mature and you look back on it, you know, I, I don't think I was ready. You know, I don't think at that at that specific time I might not have been ready for that moment. 
but you know, as I've gotten older and gotten better, um, you know, I can appreciate the things that Coach Clifford taught me and what I learned in the organization. Um, now at this moment, I'm just trying to become the best person, the best basketball player I can be. Right? Like, I think before it was so much I got to get to the NBA, I got got to get to the NBA, and now I just want to be happy and and continue my development as a as a human. So when you talk about not necessarily being ready, you're, you're a fascinating story, I reckon, of courage and perseverance. Born in Chicago, you spent five years at Northwestern College, which is ironically also the Wildcats, and it wasn't until your fifth year that you are actually genuinely healthy enough to show what you could do. So take the listeners inside what you had, pro- the problems you had with your, lunged, um, with your lungs, where you weren't actually operating like most normal people are. Yeah, so... I guess for most of my life, like I felt like it took me a, a long, like a particularly long time to get in shape. And when I was at Northwestern, my junior season, we made the tournament and played in Salt Lake City, which is pretty high elevation. It's in the mountains. And uh, we played a game against Vanderbilt. And I told my trainer or my physio um, on the sideline that I just felt like I was going to faint. And uh, I, you know, I, told, I thought I had asthma. And, uh, you know, she, you know, obviously she had her, her jokes and probably didn't believe me in the moment. But uh, after the game, I just wasn't right. And uh, so we waited until after the, you know, she got me an inhaler. We waited until after the tournament. I did some testing and some different stuff. And at first they thought I had pneumonia because the scan showed look kind of like a black image over on my, in my left lung. So I thought I had pneumonia. And we did some, some other more scans and it showed that my intestines uh liver and some other organs were crushing my left lung and so my breathing capacity i guess for my entire life until that point was only about 50 percent and um you know the doctor and at northwestern just couldn't really believe it he uh didn't really know how to operate on me luckily we found a, a specialist at the mayo clinic in minnesota who knew how to do the operation and um he actually made a joke to my mother when we asked him you know was it uh, you know, high, a high rate of success. And he kind of joked and said it's a 50-50 <laughs> with, I guess, one side of the 50 being me dying. But, um, you know, everything went well. And, uh, you know, I, I look back on it every year since then has been better and better. So I'm super, you know, I'm super grateful for that and super happy that, you know, we found that. He didn't legitimately mean you could have died, though, did he? You said when he was joking, like, that, that was a genuine joke. You weren't actually putting your life at risk by having that surgery? I don't know when um when so when we kind of asked the doctor the head doctor in Chicago at Northwestern about what we should do, he kind of thought you know he would have to operate like open heart surgery, uh, break my ribs, go into me like uh, fully like open my body up like a book and kind of go in and do stuff, and that was risky, and that would have been almost a two two year recovery, um and so he said obviously held no to that. Um, and so we went and found a specialist who, uh, did it using like little small portholes and did it much more, like much less invasive. Um, and you know, it was a success. So I'm, I'm really happy with, with who we found and how he was able to do it. So, what, so you- I, I don't know if I would have died, but you know, it seemed like the options for surgery, there would have been complications either way. So what year are we talking about here? 2018 or 17. And when did you start feeling better then? So my, I actually recovered faster than they thought. Um, I would say uh, as soon as I started playing basketball again, within five months of surgery, 
I felt better. I don't know if I noticed the difference because obviously to me, like I don't know what normal person's breath feels like, but to me, I felt normal when I was with one lung. And now, uh, I don't know. I guess I guess I'm playing better. I um, I'm, I'm more shaped, so I, I feel good. So, do you feel that your ceiling of what you can become now is significantly higher than what it would have been as you were going through college? Because you're you are only still learning how to use your body, and your your body is still learning how to get to the fitness levels and the strength levels that you would have been able to get to if you had have had that hundred percent lung capacity. Uh, sure. I mean, I don't know. I guess so. I think I guess I you know I, I think I've just been blessed to be in good situations and with good organizations the last couple of years, but. I'm excited to see what my true potential of my prime will look like. So I read that you you played at 190 pounds in college, which is 86 kilos in Australian mm-hmm. language, and you're 201 centimetres tall. So if we look at the differences between you and a couple of other players of a similar height, Dennis Rodman played at 100 kilos, so 14 kilos more than what you were at college. Kawhi mm-hmm. Leonard at 102. You're basically the same weight as what Steph Curry is, and he's you know, at 188 centimetres. How did you manage to compete without being able to go to the gym and put on that weight because your lungs weren't allowing you to do that sort of, that sort of work? Oh, I mean, I just, I'm, like I said, I'm super competitive and super fiery. I think my, one of my biggest skills is my IQ and my toughness. You know, you figure it out, right? Like no one's going to feel sorry for you that you might be a little lighter or whatever the case, even now. And I wouldn't really consider myself a big, but I'm still guarding, you know, like to like Duopery, Daniel Johnson, um, and what will be Jerome Martin on Sunday. So, you know, no one's going to take pity on you, and I, I expect nothing less uh, because on the other end of the court, I'm not looking for any excuses either. So, you know, no, I, I don't really I don't really look at my weight and see that as a disadvantage. You know, it's just how hard are you going to fight? It's interesting because there are some significant advantages as well, isn't there? Like your your agility and your athleticism is vastly different. You've got different sides of your game that players who are bigger can't keep up with you with. Do you, do you focus on those strengths? Yeah, I mean, you, I mean, you look at the, the positives and obviously, you know, you, you may have weaknesses and that's what you try to sure up. But yeah, you know, you you play to what, to what you have and the tools that you have. So given all of the dramas you've had with, with your lungs, COVID happens. I assume you were one of the 13 that got COVID in Tasmania. Have you had any issues that other players didn't have because of that when you got, when COVID was running through the group? Uh, yeah, I did. You know, I was unfortunate enough to get it. But um, no, I would say uh, um, I, did have, I was lucky enough and a lot of us were lucky enough to not have any serious complications with COVID. You know, we uh, were blessed enough to kind of, you know, have mild symptoms um, and, and luckily get the antibodies after we got out of the isolation. But now, you know, now I'm, I feel as though I'm getting my rhythm back. Uh, I'm starting to play with, with the same swagger that I was before I got COVID and uh, getting my win back. It's pretty amazing to think that, you know, as we said, you've had the lung surgery, you've had the COVID now, you had major shoulder surgery when you were at college also, and then you destroyed your ankle last year at Brisbane. I reckon you'd just be looking around going, if I can get a slice of luck with my body and get through a, a long period of time without any issues, I can really tear the sport apart. <laughs> yeah, um, you're pretty sure required. Trust me. I think, um, I, I genuinely don't think there are a lot of people, you know, in the world better than me when I'm fully healthy and fully ready to go. But I, I, I am really lucky to be in the position that I'm in, you know, to be in Perth, to still be playing the game that I love with, through everything that you've said, through all the complications, 
through COVID, just through everything, just to continue to play, to continue to play and to play at this high level. You know, now it's now it's just about being happy, man, and, and, and kind of taking care of my body the best I can, not being young and dumb anymore, and, and just kind of trying to put myself in the best positions I can. Well, you certainly put yourself in a good position against Illawarra, and that's a great lead into the Dribble Podcast MVP votes for this week. And this week I have gone with one vote for Todd Blanchfield for the way he came off the bench with his 20 points having a massive impact on that game. Two votes went to Bryce Cotton, 24 points, including four three-pointers. And there's no shock with the three votes. It's the man we're talking to, Vic Law, with 22 points, seven rebounds, and two blocks. So at this point of the season, it's extremely tight at the top. Bryce is leading on 16 votes. Vic's one vote behind on 15. Then it's daylight because Luke Travers is third on five votes in just a sign of how dominant the Cotton Law combination has been. Now, it's interesting, Vic, that when I was doing some research, obviously, to, to put all this together and to, to talk to you today, and I saw a quote from your mum saying that you were named Vic, uh, because they, but they actually call you Tory because they say Victory, as in victory. Is that, is that the, the, the true story? That that, that that was the background towards the way you, your, your parents refer to you? <laughs> yeah, I. It's funny, actually. No one outside of my family has called me Tory, but um, that is, I, I hadn't been called Vic until maybe my, you know, I got to eighth grade high school. You know, my our family has been like super close friends. Just called me Tory. Uh, my mom had worn a boy, and uh, you know, I'm, I'm the baby of the family, and she finally got me, and so named after my father, but he's Big Vic. And she had to come up with a nickname for me, so I was her victory. So how big is the family? You're the baby of the family. How many how many cracks did your mum and dad have before they got the boy? Well, I have um, I have four siblings, but I have two half siblings and two sisters. So a half brother and half sister, and then two full sisters. So with that Tory sitting next to your name, what would a championship victory mean to you this season with the Wildcats? Oh, it'd be great. It'd be my first championship. So you know, I, and I think just with this group and how close we are, I think it'd be it'd be a great feeling to to really bask in the, and even more of the winning tradition of Perth if we were able to, to pull one down ourselves. Do you feel that when you look at this team at the moment, with everything that you've been going through with COVID, with living in Tasmania, not being able to get home now for a lot of the guys, um, we've got obviously got families over here. Do you think that this team at the moment looks like a group that just has everything going for it on the court, that it can achieve that sort of success? Uh, yeah, well, I hope so. I think, I think we've built a really good roster. You know, it's actually funny. Yesterday was a, or the Illawarra game was the first game we've had our full roster playing. You know, with guys being hurt um, or otherwise. You know, it's the first time we've actually had everybody. So, I think, um, yeah, I, I, I think we have some of the makings to be a very, very good team. You know, only time will tell, but we'll take it one game at a time and keep pushing. Now, we have a segment here on the Dribble Podcast called This or That. We ask a question and we don't like people sitting on the fence. We like to know their exact opinion. And the question for this week is, should the unsportsmanlike foul be removed from the last two minutes of games to allow for more intentional fouls to stop the clock? Or is it good to retain the advantage for the team that spent 38 minutes working hard to get their lead? What do you think? Keep the unsportsmanlike foul late or remove it and change the game a little bit? I think I think they should remove it completely. I think uh, some of the unsportsmanlike fouls are a little iffy. You know, I obviously think that there's a gray area with what is a basketball and non-basketball play, but some of some of the reach-in fouls and some of the other calls that are made are uh, with being unsportsmanlike. I think maybe a little too um, light to to warrant the extra penalty. 
it's certainly a big penalty in the game. There's, there's no doubt about that. Well, look, thank you so much for joining us. The Wildcats' next game is a rematch against Illawarra on, on Thursday, 4.30 p.m. Western time, followed by a clash against the Sydney Kings on Sunday. Vic, we hope things continue to go extremely well for both yourself and the team, and it's been uh, really enjoyable talking to you, and it's been really enjoyable watching you. Th- so thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And now it's time to enter the lair with this lady. Oh, great move there from Eisenbarger. Count it plus the foul. Ooh, and Eisenbarger buries one from long range. Uh, the kick out to Eisenbarger. That's her second three-pointer of the game. Eisenbarger's feeling it at the moment. She splashes that one in her third three-pointer. Yes, fresh from the most stunning performance of her career, it's Ash Eisenbarger, or is it Eisenbarger or Eisenbarger? She's mentioned in many different ways at the moment. Ash, welcome to the Dribble Podcast. Hi, great to be here. Thanks for having me. Now, let's start with this name thing, because it does my head in when people can't pronounce my name or spell my name correctly. So how are we pronouncing your name for the record? <laughs> it is Eisenbarger, and it's a bit of adjustment for me coming from Grant. Like everyone knows how to pronounce that, so I'm still getting used to, it. still getting used to it. <laughs> but it's always good to hear your name mentioned, regardless when you're slamming down three pointers like you were on the weekend. It was quite an extraordinary game. Nineteen points, five three pointers from seven attempts. What was that like? Um, honestly, I <laughs> I couldn't tell you. I think it was just that I wasn't overthinking. Um, that I was just trying to do what we needed to do to get the team the win. Um, and I guess the opportunity presented itself where I was open and I shot the ball. <laughs> um, so yeah, just, yeah. <laughs> so five from seven, it's an amazing game. Like you shot at 31% from the perimeter during the NBL one West season and your career record in the WNBL is 23%, but obviously that's it when you're a younger player as well. You look really comfortable this year, I reckon with ball in hand. How much work have you done to, to get yourself to this point? Um, it's been a lot of work, honestly. Um, and just like you mentioned before in NBL one, like my role has changed a ton in the last season especially but just in the last couple of seasons um and so having that opportunity on the court um i think has really grown my game just being able to like be relied on and be a significant role player in a team um i think yeah it's a live opportunity to practice against some of the best in the state and i think that's just been a huge yeah credit to my improvement i guess you could say <laughs> so have you, have you gone back and forth with the coaches and so sort of said i want to improve in this part so can you play me in this sort of a, a role to, to help your wmbl career when you because nbl one west is a perfect opportunity to work on things during the off season so how do you have that conversation to get the role that you need to be the player you want to be at the next level up absolutely uh well yeah growing up as a kid i was always the tallest, if not one of the tallest on the court. But as you get to WNBL level, um, I'm an undersized big. Uh, So it's been kind of a crucial role for me to stretch into that three, four player rather than a four, five player and really develop that side of my game where I'm able to play against, you know, big guards, small guards, big bigs, you know, that kind of thing, but also be able to guard those like a multitude of different players with different skill sets. Um, So that's been something really important that I've just sort of had to be open about with NBL one coaches and be like, Hey, I'm hoping to play, you know, this kind of role in WNBL. Um, And yeah, thankfully they've all been fantastic coaches that have really helped me work towards that um, and be really encouraging in that. And yeah. 
<laughs> so so I'll, it's been interesting talking to different athletes over the past 12 to 18 months about how they handled lockdown and what they tried to work on given they were stuck at home a lot of the time or weren't able to practice with different people. But you were in an, in an environment where your husband is also an NBL One West player and he's a fair three-point shooter as well. He had more attempts and more three-points made than anyone else in NBL One West last season and went at 44%, Jack. So did you two spend a bit of time working on, on the three-point range uh, of your game as well, going out to parks or, or or anything like that, or is it a pure coincidence that coincidence that you're shooting like this at the moment at the time when he's shooting like that? Um, yeah, we definitely we definitely worked on it together. Um, and even whether it's you know specifically shooting or not, he is an energizer bunny, and he's always looking to better himself. And I really think that rubs off on me in all areas of life. So um, yeah, I definitely think that that yeah, <laughs> he's been a big factor in that too. So when you think, when we talk about him, from a family perspective at the moment with everyone over there, like it's, it was a really difficult week last week with the, with the border news um, and it's prevents all of you from being able to come home with any surety at the moment. You missed your two-year wedding anniversary earlier this month given that you're, you're uh, over there at the moment. Um, how difficult was it to hear that the border news was going to be so different for your return eventually than what it was when you were told you were leaving? Um, yeah. Honestly, it really blindsided us all. Um, it's been a pretty, pretty tough couple of days. Um, just as we try and navigate that, and uh, we're still waiting to hear, you know, what our options are. And so, just that <laughs> unknown has been really difficult. Um, especially coming from, you know, like a twelve-week preseason, uh, <laughs> something crazy like that, and just what our season looked like has changed so many times. It's unbelievable um, that it's, it's really, really tricky for us to keep adapting and we're doing the best we absolutely can and supporting. Thankfully, we're a part of a really supportive club. Um, people who lead us, so everyone around us is really supportive, but it, it, yeah, it doesn't change that. It really sucks. Um, yeah. For all of us in lots of different ways, but um yeah. So I mentioned when we opened the podcast today that one of my frustrations with the new rules is the alteration to the home quarantine rules because I, I went through it myself, having lived in mm -hmm. Queensland covering AFL football twice in, in 2020. You went to the WNBL hub last season, came home, mm -hmm. were able to live with Jack. He was able to go to work. You could quarantine at home under those rules. That was, now the rules have changed. Now he can't go to work if you go home, like that must make it a really difficult conversation to know what you're going to do when you are allowed to come back. Yeah, thankfully, uh, I believe the links are, you know, well, there's no, <laughs> nothing set in stone just yet with like what is happening with our season exactly. Um, but I know that they will have our back in whatever way that is. Like a lot of us have roommates that are teachers or husbands or partners, you know, that will be out in the community. And so they're going to do their absolute best to find us a situation where we're able, you know, where it impacts the people around us the least um, if we do, if it does come down to quarantining. Um yeah. <laughs> so so then, then there's your job. I mean, you're a, you're a professional photographer and a bloody good one. Um, you should, <laughs> so our shoots, weddings, engagements, family milestones. When people ring up and say, hey, I wouldn't mind booking you in in you know, the first week of March, there's a big difference between saying I'll definitely be home versus I might be in quarantine or even I've booked you in for February 20 and now I don't know where I'm going to be living. Like that must have been really difficult for you to, to work through at the moment. Yeah, 
it it has been um obviously and like you mentioned all those things that i do photograph are really important milestones in people's lives and i always feel so terrible when i'm not able to give them a concrete answer um so it, coming into this season i knew you know just based on this past year that there was a lot that was potentially going to change or shift around and become different to what we initially thought so thankfully i from the get go just haven't booked any weddings um within this time because that's obviously something <laughs> can't just hey can you just change your wedding date for me like no longer able to come like that's <laughs> that's a really big deal for me and i take it as a really big honor so i've avoided that um but yeah it's i've had to shift around a few engagements um and family sessions that have been in february where when you know and even march where when it's not certain that we're going to be back anymore at that point um so yeah that's been very challenging but thankfully all the clients that i work with have been understanding at the same time and they all know that you know i have a unique combination of professions in a photographer and a professional basketballer so yeah <laughs> if anyone out there is getting married or has some children or has an engagement that you want to photograph post WNBL says, so I can tell you, she's very, very good. Uh, go, go onto her website, www.ashalolaphotography, A-S-H-A-L-O-L-A photography.com. She also has an Instagram page under Asha Lola Photography. Some of the photos you can view there are absolutely breathtaking. You should check out one that she took last year of a bride standing in front of this beautifully lit table at an outdoor dinner with fairy lights strung up on the wall and the sun setting. It's absolutely majestic that photo and will make you want to hire her for sure <laughs> tell me how you got into photography as a basketballer <laughs> thank you so much for that um but yeah, uh, well i've i think my two passions growing up were basketball or just sport in general and i've always had a creative side i definitely got that from my mom um but i just i've always loved it and i was constantly told oh, you can't make a profession out of that. Like there's not enough, you know, you can't earn enough money from that to make a living and that kind of thing. And it kind of just got to the point where I was like, why, why not? Um, and so I really just gave it a crack. And honestly, it snowballed a lot faster than I expected. Um, and I think that's because it's easy to put in a lot of work to it because I love it and enjoy it so much. Um, and it really is a passion of mine. And so I think it was more just the natural path that I took to just yeah take it that step further from being a hobby and yeah <laughs> i love photographing people and all of that is yeah big combination of things <laughs> it's funny because you have this joy about you. you can hear it coming through the, the microphone at the moment it's, it's, it's this pure unadulterated joy and i've really seen you not smiling whether it's on or off the court and I, uh, there's this line on your website which reads i believe every human is created to love and to be loved i believe everyone has a story and when two stories come together to become one i think that is the ultimate reflection of love whatever your adventure to find each other looks like <laughs> it deserves to be told for years to come i would love the honor of capturing your moment and how it felt how much does that drive you, the opportunity to, to make genuine memories for people? Yeah, like I said before, it it really is an honour. And just to be able to capture like those small moments that maybe on the day they don't even – like the wedding days go so fast and the bride and groom or bride, bride, groom, groom, they might not even notice half the things that go on just because they're so consumed with everything else that when I give them back their album, like I really hope that they see other things that are going on with their family members and their friends and even just moments between themselves that they don't even 
realize at the time. And then it's just like, it's something that's concrete forever. And our memories fade, but you know, if you have those photos to look back on, like I really think that's something special. And it's such an honor that I get to be a part of someone's wedding day. Like it still blows my mind and it's, yeah, it's something really crazy and I really love doing it and I really love being a part of it. So I did find it extremely ironic that as I was writing the story the other day, I went into the, the photos from that were taken from the game and the photographers at WNBL in Ballarat have to set up at one end of the court and they'd set up at the other end of the court from where you were nailing threes and there wasn't a single <laughs> photo of the photographer on the court playing basketball who was out dominating the game. And I was like, what an ironic moment in sports. And, and which is a perfect segue to get into the Dribble Podcast MVP votes from Perth's last two games against Cam. I've gone one vote to our guest, Ash, for her brilliant second half. Two votes to Lauren Scherf, who became just the sixth Lynx player since the rebrand of 2015-16 to win 14 rebounds. She also scored 15 points and had four assists. And it was three votes to Darcy Garvin for 24 points, nine rebounds, and two steals. Then against the Sydney Uni Flames, one vote to Lauren Scherf for yet another double-double. Two votes to Jackie Young after turning the game in the final quarter. And three votes was pretty damn obvious. Marina Mabry scored 34 points and six rebounds, four assists, and one steal. It was an unbelievable game. Tell me about Marina. She's a really interesting cat to watch on the on the court. She's intense, and she's skilled, and she's powerful, and everything. What's she like to play with? She She's a really passionate human on and off the court, um, but it's been so awesome to be her teammate and just to get around her and the way she gets around us as well. Like, it's not every day you get to play with WNBA players like that of her caliber and Jackie's too. And even just honestly, our whole team, Sammy, Jack, uh, Darcy, Lauren, like they're all amazing players. Um, but yeah, it's, it's been awesome to play with Marina this season. Yeah. Is there something about those players that has helped you to become a better player yourself, whether it's training with them or the advice they can give? Is there anything specific which you go, that's really helped me so far this season? Just I, well, there's a lot of things, but the number one thing is every single day we go to training, like I'm playing against some of the best players in the whole country, the whole, you know, WNBA, the WNBL, like they represent Australia. Um, <laughs> so training against them, it's naturally going to make you better. Um, yeah, it's, it still blows my mind. <laughs> Honestly, sometimes I look at our team and I'm like, wow, I get to play with these people and that's so awesome. <laughs> Not only do you get to play with them, so Darcy's the captain and then the leadership team is yourself and Sammy Wickham. So your impact on this team is a lot more than just your ability to play. Yeah, th- that in itself, um, earlier in the year when that or, yeah, when that uh, got announced, um, that in itself was just a really – big privilege for me um, to be named on the leadership team alongside such high caliber players. Um, it's really not something I take lightly. And yeah, on this team, it's definitely something. Um, yeah. I didn't even have the words for it. <laughs> Lost for words, but uh, yeah. <laughs> so what, what do you try to do then as a leader? So you're, you're obviously the Darcy and Sammy are starting. You're coming off the bench with it. A lot of players you've played WM, uh, NBA one West with or against, what are your, what are you focusing on with that group to make them better and, and what they can learn from when they're sitting on the bench preparing to come on or in some of them who don't get a lot of minutes are watching the game and, and building their progress there. What, what's your focus point from a teaching perspective as a leader? Um, as a leader, some of the best leaders that I've been under are the ones that serve. 
um, and which is kind of controversial. I think Sammy and Darcy really lead from the front. Um, they they set the example on the court, off the court. So do a lot of other girls. But um, I guess I think my role is to be an encourager and to try and speak life into the girls and as much as I can. And, you know, if someone needs a rebounder, like a rebound for them, you know, like just small things like that. Um, I just really tried to my goal is to just try fill those gaps and just to try to serve as best I can. Um, yeah. <laughs> Which is a real, uh, to, uh, that shows the, the genuine element of leadership. I think it, you're, I find you really interesting. Like when you look at the challenges of sport, you're a young kid when you debuted in the WNBL at 2015, 16, then you moved to Melbourne boomers for, for two seasons. You won their most improved player award. You played in the grand final then you, then you won Lakeside lightnings MVP award. And suddenly you step away from the WNBL to travel with Jack to America, which was an outstanding move in hindsight, given COVID would have meant that you would have never got back there for oh, probably till 2050 at this rate. Um, but what did the time away from the game do for you? Um, yeah, well, like you said, I I have been playing in the WNBL since 2015-16 and it was it's been a year-round thing of going from WNBL to NBL or SBL and then back to WNBL and then SBL and it, honestly, it kind of got to the point where I just needed a mental physical break. Um there definitely was the side of wanting to go visit Jack's family and we had our wedding in January and all of that, but it was actually really great to take that time away and be like, no, basketball is something I actually still really want to do. And it was a choice rather than something that I just kind of fell into, you know, season after season. Um, so that was really good just to be able to distinguish that in my own mind and be like, no, I'm choosing to do this now. And um, I'm coming back refreshed and had time away. And obviously Jack, <laughs> Jack and I were still over in the US, you know, working on our game and training with friends that are coaches and that kind of thing. Um, but yeah, it was mainly to just distinguish like, hey, is this something I really want to do? Is it something that I'm just naturally falling into? Or is it something that I really choose to do? And yeah, I chose that I really wanted to do it. Oh, and you've, and you've chosen to come back at a bloody good time. You're in a damn good team and you're having a big impact with it at the moment too. So hopefully for WA Basketball, this can continue. Now, we have a segment on the dribble called This or That. Can't sit on the fence. Got to give a real answer. And the question for this week for This or That is around the unsportsmanlike foul late in games. Do you reckon that the unsportsmanlike foul should be removed from the last two minutes of the game to allow for more intentional fouls to stop the clock? Or is it good to retain it so that the team that has already worked up that advantage over 38 minutes retains it keep it or move it on <laughs> this is a very controversial one um i i would say move it on i've been a part of a few games where that unsportsmanlike call even though it's not an intentional play you know to hurt somebody but it's been called an unsportsmanlike and that can have a huge impact in the last few minutes so i would say move it on just to keep that you know level levelness <laughs> of being able to like you said foul to stop the clock and um yeah as a strategic strategic thing <laughs> i think it gets me like. <laughs> interesting. Both Vic and Ash, both today, saying that they don't like that rule, which is um, <laughs> interesting from the players' perspective. Well, look, thanks so much for joining us, and good luck for the upcoming games against Southside on Thursday and Bendigo on Saturday. May the threes continue to rain for you. 
<laughs> Thank you so much. That's it for the Dribble Podcast for this week. Remember, keep logging on to thewest.com.au for all your basketball news and pick up your copy of The West Australian. Thanks to Samantha Rogers, as always, for all of her production work. Thanks to Vic Law and Ash Eisenbarger for their time. We'll be back next week for another episode of the Dribble Podcast.